Welcome back to the Teaching in Tech podcast for season two with Alan and Chad, where we continue to explore everything related to teaching, learning, and technology integration. Working with teachers, we see amazing things happening in classrooms every day. In each episode, we'll detail teaching strategies and technology integration ideas that are working. Also, special guests will join us to share strategies that have been successful with students. All right. Well, welcome back for another episode of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad. And in the last episode, as we talked about uh, some of the challenges that teachers face when uh, teaching a classroom with uh, students speaking different languages and some of the strategies that we've noticed teachers uh, have been able to have success with, um, we're going to go a little bit different direction in that in that area this episode. And we're really fortunate to be joined by not one, but two guests from the World Language Department at McKinley High School. We have Jessica Friesner and Debbie Varga. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So as we get started today, let's just talk a little bit. Um, each of you in the World Language Department, both teaching Spanish classes uh, here at McKinley High School. Uh, let's talk a little bit just about um, the path that you took and, you know, going from, you know, speaking one language, being, you know, bilingual. Um, Jessica, let's start with you. How did you uh, how did you go down that path? Um, so. You know, starting in high school, taking foreign language, we had a foreign language requirement. Um, and, you know, my dad wanted me to take German because that's what he took. Um, but for me, I just knew that Spanish was the more useful language, right? And um, and I'm a language person. I love, like, English and, and Spanish were always my strongest subjects. I love to write. I love to read. Everything about language um, is just kind of my personality. So I really enjoyed it in high school. I had some great teachers. And then when I went into college, um, I originally started off with a minor and then sort of realized that the, the major would be a couple more classes. And so I did that knowing somewhere deep inside that it was going to be something that I would need. Um, I don't know what you want to call that, but um, just kind, kind of, of intuition of sorts. Yeah, huh? like an intuition. Yeah, because even my advisor in college is like, this is going to take you five years. You're going to, you know, and I'm like, I know this is something I need to do. So um, and in college, I had the opportunity to actually do my student teaching in Guatemala. So I lived there for a semester and lived with a Guatemalan family. Wow. Um, I taught English, but just living there and being surrounded by all of it was amazing. And my intention was never really to teach Spanish. I wanted to be an English teacher, um, but we know that a lot of there weren't a lot of openings when I graduated for English teachers, and there was a huge need, as there always is, for Spanish teachers. Um, and so that's kind of my, the way my my path went. And for me, one of the things was that you know I was for me Spanish was very academic. Um, I I could read and write really well. When it came to speaking, I was always pretty shy. I didn't want to make mistakes. I wanted I only wanted to say something if I could say it perfectly because I didn't want to embarrass myself or sound like a newbie, right? Or sound like a learner. Um, mm -hmm. So I really kind of held back with my speaking um, for a really long time. And actually, even when I first started teaching, the majority of my students were Spanish learners. They were primarily sp English speakers. And so you're teaching at a you know, teaching Spanish one and two, it's a pretty basic level of language. I wasn't really challenged beyond some of this simple basic language until we started getting students here at McKinley who were either purely Spanish speakers or who were fully bilingual. And so the, really it was my students that pushed my own literacy and fluency in Spanish, helped raise my level of language and really um, 
helps me get to the point where I feel like now I can say, yes, I'm bilingual, right? Um, but but it really is too like a lifelong thing because nobody in my family spoke Spanish. Nobody in my family now speaks Spanish, right? I have, all of my friends are English speakers for the most part uh, that I communicate with on a regular basis. So really keeping up with it, with teaching and being around our kids here at McKinley. Well, that's interesting because, you know, really with anything that you're working on, uh, trying to learn something new, you don't really get that mastery until you have a chance to apply it and, right. have a, you know, a chance to practice it and, and really put it to use. And so just as you kind of described, when you're working with English speakers who are in Spanish one and you're working on basic vocabulary, that's not really a chance for you to hone your skills. And then when we to get uh, a lot of native language speakers who speak Spanish, it's really a great chance to kind of put that to use. And then, as you said, really feel, almost feel like you fully became bilingual then in, in that application. Well, so, Debbie, to, oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry. Well, even too, just with the style of language that I use, because like I said, most of my Spanish, well, at that point, all of my Spanish was very academic, you know, and very neutral. And, and then as we started getting students from different places in the Spanish speaking world, you start kind of picking up vocabulary and ways of expressing yourself that sort of take you out of that academic and more into just the actual real world here. How do I communicate with people? So, yeah, different nuances, different mm -hmm. uh, dialects from different regions and those types of things. Okay. So Debbie, let's go ahead and let's shift over then to you. Okay. Let's uh, hear a little bit about your path. Hi. Well, um, so my experience, I started when I was in eighth grade. Um, I'm from the area also. So in this area, we didn't have a lot of native Spanish speakers back when I was taking Spanish. And when I actually graduated from high school, I went to Kent Stark. Um, and I remember a lot of people telling me, oh, you'll have to move to Florida or California to find a job. Well, you know, so much has changed since mm -hmm. that time. And it was really interesting because during my formative years, my dad, when he was in the military, was stationed in Panama on the canal zone. And so I picked up words from him when I was little and got to use it in our local church and with a family. And so that really inspired me to become interested in the language. Um, and then also uh, when I was in college, a lady actually moved down the street from me from Barcelona and her name was Mercedes. And she was kind of my native speaker practice also outside of my high school setting because we didn't have a lot of native speakers at the time. So again, that academic focus kind of perfection, you know, rather than making yourself comprehensible. And so for me, that was my chance to, you know, get some real world exposure and gain confidence through speaking rather than just sitting in the class. Cause I was very much like that too. I was kind of very receptive you know, what, we didn't have a lot of opportunities to share out um, with our, you know, classmates, our language skills. So for me over the years, it's been like reinventing myself where now seeing the students that we have in our population and what is happening, it's a great opportunity for me to grow even in my own language skills over time. So I really um, enjoy seeing the change in our school culture and showing kids that, you know, what an opportunity it is to learn a language. And I think that was for me, the reason why I went in language education mm -hmm. is because I wanted my students to feel the joy that I felt when I spoke something that was just new to me. I, it just came naturally to me too. I, I feel, I really enjoyed the class, but it was just this joy of being able to 
relate to somebody that, you know, was from a different culture and you could build community with them. So that's something that I've been continuously kind of trying to keep in my back of my head over the years when again, reinventing myself with um, language teaching. So one of the things I think that's kind of interesting is I hear each of you describe, you know, the different factors that kind of led you to where you are today. And it's interesting that for most teachers, even though there's an interest in some type of content or some type of, of skill that you're going to be teaching, a lot of times it comes back to relationships that you have and connections that you have. You know, Jessica, you mentioned some of the Spanish teachers that you had in high school and good connections there. And then, uh, Debbie, some of the um, relationships that you mentioned, families that you had, uh, you know, had contact with at a younger age and how that kind of led you forward. So I think it is kind of interesting in our profession that even though there's a lot of different content areas and a lot of different skills that we work with uh, when we're, we're dealing with students, it almost always seems to at some level come back to that relationship factor and, and making connections with people, which I think is, is kind of one of the cool things about our profession. So let's go ahead and, and let's move forward and talk a little bit about, you know, in the setting that, that each of you teach, um, you often have a mixture of, of English speakers and, and native Spanish speakers. Um, let's talk maybe a little bit about some of the, the different strategies that you might use when, teaching a language, but working with, with different language speakers. So any, either of you, if you have something maybe to contribute in that way, go ahead. So um, for me, I have the opportunity to work with an advanced Spanish two class, and it's not a big class, but it's about half EL English language learners, and then half Spanish as a second language learners, um, including actually a, I have a student who speaks Quiche. So for him, it's as if he is also learning Spanish as a second or third language, really, along with English. And one of the things I did recently that was very su successful um, is I had my native speaking, English speaking students interview the Spanish students about certain interests that they had related to food. Um, and then we did, a, we did a survey, and then my English learners would interview the students that speak English as a native language and find out from them, but they used English. So it was a great way for them to cross like that cultural comparison, and they felt very confident. It was really funny, actually. Today I had feedback from one of my students who we had to do a one-on-one -on -one interview uh, in Spanish English, um, a native English speaker, and he said he felt less intimidated speaking with the native speaking Spanish students than he did with me in class. Wow. So I thought that was powerful because they, you could see there, it's around them in our, in our school. They, they are being um, able to hear from their peers Spanish, even if it's a passive kind of learning experience. Um, and you can tell that also by their accents um, for my Spanish speaking I'm sorry, my uh, English speaking students, like they, they are able to acquire and learn the language that way. And the English speaking students, I'm sorry, English learners, I apologize. Um, they're getting a great opportunity to also pick up a lot of slang terms, idiomatic phrases that wouldn't maybe necessarily be used in Spanish. So it's really been beneficial both ways. That's one thing. Um, another thing so, I want to well, mention well, too. Just a quick question oh, I had as far as that that activity. So one of the things that we know, like in 
any type of grouping that we do with students, a, a lot of the success in the activity comes from like planning beforehand and how the kids actually group together. So mm -hmm. I was just curious when you did that um, interview activity and the kids, uh, you know, that were di speaking different native languages, um, how did you go about gr assigning groups or did they choose their groups or how did you do that? So it was interesting. What we did actually is kind of bridge the sides, the class, the groups together and that we kind of did it in like a small group kind of conversational setting, very informal. I didn't mm -hmm. assign anybody. And it was really interesting how the students um, that were the English speakers kind of took the role to guide the kids on how to feel comfortable. They, they interviewed right away and then the other kids followed suit. Um, so I kind of, kind of let it a little bit open with that. I find, mm -hmm. I find when I do something like that in a smaller class like that, um, you'll get a better performance versus somebody that they're assigned to. Mm -hmm. The kids seem to have more choice. I think that's that powerful aspect of that free choice, student choice. So that's- and That makes a lot of sense life. because as you were describing that, that was one of the things that kind of came into my mind is that, uh, you know, the the way that the kids interacted with each other would be important. And if you had some groups where they maybe weren't necessarily comfortable, it might be kind of a limit on how well they could they could kind of converse and go back and forth. So yeah, that's interesting. Also, there was one other thing that we did um, in my Spanish three class that I just remembered. Um, it's been ongoing with our um, an English teacher, Mrs. Jones. Uh, she has a, a conversational class, and we're doing a pen pal project where her hmm. kids write to my students um, in English, then my students write back to them in Spanish. And mm -hmm. it's been a monthly kind of um, basis. And so I'm finding the students are very motivated to really, you know, write as well as they can. Um, and it's thematic. So we have some dates that we picked out and topics. And again, that peer kind of collaboration piece is better than is if maybe I was sitting with them and talking mm -hmm. if they're getting because they know they have an authentic audience. And I think that's right. a key thing, that authentic audience. Yeah, and that was, you know, my background coming from, um, although at the middle school level, you know, STEM education, that's one of the main things in, in project-based learning that we talk about is providing an authentic audience. So when you mentioned that idea of they're not just writing a letter to you and you're going to evaluate it and then return mm -hmm. it back to them, but actually knowing they're talking to another, you know, peer, uh, albeit in a different language, that gives them exactly that authentic audience. And I would I would guess that, you know, as you mentioned, that that would give them a lot more motivation to want to take some time to make sure that their message comes through the way that they want to convey it and they spend a little more with it. Now, do you do that um, activity? Is that done through email? No, it's actually through a folder that we have just on paper. Oh, okay. Um, so we want them to try to write without using the technology based on what they're learning in class if they can. Mm -hmm. But when we do integrate the technology, a lot of times we've been using that to learn new phrases so a lot of times i'll have students indicate if there's new vocabulary on there they'll like underline it for me just to show that so i can guide them kind of if they're um, using it correctly kind of give them some feedback on that so um we've been kind of uh, using that so far and it's been working out pretty well so awesome awesome so Jessica, let's um, shift over to you. One of the things that uh, that we talked about previously, and for lack of a better term, I guess I'll, I'll call this inverse language um, learning, uh, but you had mentioned that at times uh, having the Spanish speakers that you have in your class translating and writing in English while 
the English speakers are then writing and, and speaking in Spanish. So kind of a form of differentiation almost to help the students work on their skills. Maybe can you elaborate on that a little bit and how, how you go about that? Yeah, so in in previous years, kind of the way that we did some, you know, we were looking, students were looking for electives. We knew that Spanish was a place where they would have some support with a Spanish speaking teacher. Um, so in years past, I found that I had more students who were, were native Spanish speakers. Spanish was their first language and they're sitting in classes going, really, I have to learn how to say I am tall. I already know how to say that. I've known that since I was two, you know? Um, and so what, what I would do in those situations would be, I, you know, I would have them do the exact same structures, but teach that to them in English so that they're practicing their English structures. Um, you know, it, de it really depends on the student though, because, you know, you can't just assume just because someone has a Spanish sounding name or, you know, that they might speak Spanish, that's their first language and they're completely fluent. So we do have a lot of students here at McKinley whose Spanish, for, for whom Spanish is a second language. Um, and they might, you know, be able to speak it and understand it well, but their reading and writing isn't very strong. And so it just really depends on the student what I'll have them do. Um, you know, if I have a student who I know Spanish is their second language, I'm still gonna have them do some of the writing um, and they're reading things in Spanish because I know it's something that they need to work on. But when it maybe comes to conversation or when, you know, we're doing um, like if the, the the class or the student and I are having conversation one on one, I'll have them do it, practice it in English just to kind of get them um, used to that. Like at the beginning of the year, I always do pronunciation and we start with the alphabet. And they're like, really? So I'm like, well, let's practice it in English. Like, let's learn what the sounds make in English. And we'll talk a lot about like, OK, well, you know there's a lot of kind of comparatives in terms of pronunciation and spelling where you can go, okay, well, we do this in English to, to you know, to our, our Spanish speaking students, whereas you might do this in Spanish. So I always try and, and add in some of that English with them because they are learning and perfecting it. And, and um, that has been one of the most successful things for me with a lot of my students who are learning English as a second or third language. That's really interesting to me because when you're thinking about the idea of literacy, you know, literacy isn't just reading, but when you're looking at reading, writing, and speaking skills, and as you mentioned, like students could be really strong in one of those three areas, but then need more skill development in another. So it would definitely, from the position of a teacher with that approach you're taking, there would just be that element of trying to like get a, uh, you know, barometer on each student of where they are in those areas. And, and then as you've, you know, mentioned kind of how do we go about starting to build in the areas that they need more work and then also emphasize the areas that are strengths so that they can have some confidence and kind of move forward in that way. Well, and, and I find even too, like with some of my my students who, whose first language is Spanish, I'm not going to be necessarily even as critical on them for things that I would be critical of, of my students who are learning Spanish as a second language. So like my kids know that I'm pretty strict about spelling and accents and punctuation. Um, there are things that a native Spanish speaker are going to do in terms of spelling that are common mistakes, right? And we'll talk about them, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to mark them off on something because that's they're, they're writing how they hear, they're writing how they understand. Mm -hmm. um, so even in my grading, I'm, I'm switch up and I differentiate, you know, to what extent I'm going to hold them accountable. Um, because the whole point of language is to be able to communicate. And if you can mm -hmm. communicate with me, right, it depends on the skill, obviously, but if you can communicate with me, you're doing what I need you to do, right? If you can address all of the the elements of a prompt, a writing prompt, then you're doing what I need you to do. Is is the spelling, is the accent really the most important thing? It depends on the student, it depends on the level, it depends on the assignment, so. Yeah.
So another question, maybe just a thought that I had and thinking about this from a technology angle, and this could be uh, for either of you, like when you're in an environment where you're teaching, you know, a, a language in this way, what are some of the ways that technology can be helpful in doing that? So it's interesting because I was reflecting on this um, topic last night as well again, and digital storytelling is something that I want to continue working on with my students and being able to use some kind of um, product such as um, clips or, or keynote. And the main thing is I always think about when you're when you're talking about proficiency, um, moving up that continuum from like a novice speaker to an intermediate and then advanced and so on, you know, you want to try to build those, not only the confidence, but those skills. So for example, like maybe a novice speaker would start off with memorized phrases and then they progress to memory, or I'm sorry, listing words, then memorize phrases. And then they go to sentences that they create on their own and then connected sentences. And that gets you into start that intermediate level and then going to paragraphs and then multiple paragraphs up into like probably the advanced mode. Um, and I think that's something that not only as language teachers that we can apply in the classroom, but teachers that teach English as a second language, or even if they're seeing the students in their class at RELs, maybe in other core classes, kind of focus in on that with their students, trying to um, have the kids progress from that list and word response, mm -hmm. whether oral or written into the more expanded responses with lots of scaffolds as always scaffolds are really the key. So using the technology piece with that is a way to build confidence, whether it's through flip or again, maybe mm -hmm. something as clips or keynote. Well, and, and as you're describing those, anytime you can in integrate video and visuals, those things are definitely, you know, good to help build those skills and, and have them be able to tie things together when it's not just, uh, you know, textual, but being able to add some of those uh, graphics, videos, and other things like that. And I think, too, that regardless of the subject, you know, if you have well-planned activities using those different technology tools, uh, they can really be motivators, too, because the kids start to work toward developing a product as opposed to just kind of like rolling through content, you know, or, or discussing or reviewing content over and over. And, you know, one of the things Alan and I, we've talked about in previous episodes is that, just using the technology on its own isn't on its own really isn't a motivator anymore. But if it's a well-designed activity, uh, then it can definitely take it, you know, to a, a, an extended level where the kids get more out of it and enjoy it. So. And and when I think about technology too, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the rest of the staff who aren't, you know, aren't Spanish speakers who might not understand Spanish well. And I think of. You know, we've had trainings where we're presented with all kinds of wonderful apps and tools and all kinds of things online. Like I know there are extensions on all kinds of, of the Google apps that you can use to help. Um, and the thing the thing that I do with my students that I try and work on with my students is to show them like, you know, we have this online dictionary. You have the ability to look up these words, but we have to think more critically and not just pull the first thing that pops up. Right. So look at the context. Right. Um, Spanish Dictionary is a great online dictionary. It gives you context. It gives you location, like regional varieties. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things like that. Um, it's a great tool. It has, you know, things like a thesaurus and it has like practice, uh, grammar practice. And there's actually a, an English equivalent of that website. I think it's 
I'd have to look at it. I think it's like English.com or something like that. It's mm -hmm. very similar. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I teach my students, like, don't just look up a word, look at the context, make sure it's the right word that you want to pick. And, and sometimes because we're in survival mode and we're just trying to be able to communicate with students, I know some staff will be like, well, I, I'm just going to put this through Google Translate and it gets the job done. Right. But there's a lot of meaning that gets jumbled in, in some of those things. Um, you know, I've had students that will bring me work and say, I, I think I know what they're asking, but I don't really know. And I read it and I'm like, yeah, that's Google Translate for you. Like what they mean is this, um, right. you know, there's there's definitely a difference between using a tool in a survival situation or, you know, like to to get something done. And you won't, you know, most speak, most other teachers wouldn't know whether it was correct or not. You're really trusting, putting a lot of faith in Google Translate. Yeah. But even, you know, looking at that with a critical lens and trying to make sure that you're, you're using the right context, you know, um, and things like that, because technology can be great and useful in a lot of ways, but it can also cause a lot of confusion um, yeah. for students. <laughs> so, well, it certainly it certainly requires a lot of human oversight because, yeah. um, as you mentioned, you know, the technology, it, it, it's great, but in certain cases if the the context doesn't come through in the way that you intended it then it's not necessarily as effective as maybe what you thought it would be and from my end when i've helped teachers with these different tools and introducing things they can use to try to bridge some of those gaps that's the most difficult part for me not you know not being bilingual i don't really have the ability to verify that accuracy and so while i can take a pdf and which in the past was much more difficult to translate it now we have some tools that can do that pretty quickly but we also then I've actually kind of one of the things I've done to try to troubleshoot from a, from a technology angle is trying to after it's in Spanish, then translate it back to English. And you actually can uncover some of those uh, differences when you do that, because then reading the English, you see it's not really translated as intended. So. And also, too, I'm thinking about the um, there's a saying that we use in world language education, language is culture and culture is language. And so a lot of times. Um, the formal, informal aspect of giving directions to students. Sometimes if you do use something online in Google Translate or some kind of online source and knowing, you know, because there's the nuances in Spanish of like tú and usted and knowing the differences between, you know, are you directing the student in the informal sense or the formal sense? So kind of just being aware of those things um, is helpful as well. So the students know kind of what, to expect, I think, of themselves. Well, it's interesting too. It just makes me think a little bit as you were talking about some of those um, nuances, you know, in Spanish. And a good friend of mine, when I taught in Fremont, who worked with some of our EL students there, he was a native of Peru. And he used to always kind of rib me a little bit about our language is the beautiful language. Yours is just kind of like on this lower level. It's very hard to describe things. You just don't have enough words and enough ways to describe it. And that always kind of stuck with me a little bit, just that when you're comparing two languages, translating is not necessarily apples to apples always, because there's different, as you mentioned, the culture and the language, there's different ways of describing things, different ways of saying things. And uh, so it's kind of interesting when you're making those comparisons. Well, and even when you look at the way that you speak versus what you read on the page, because Spanish is far more phonetic and follows rules much more frequently than English does. We all know we spent time in elementary school, like our spelling is all over the place in English. I um, before so E, except after C, except in certain <laughs> right. cases. 
Well, and I always show my students examples of like the O-U-G-H and how, how different O-U-G-H can sound based on different words. Um, and so, you know, even reading for students who are coming at English as a second language, reading is difficult because the way, the, if you're reading out loud or if you're trying to connect what you hear people saying around you to what you see on the page, a lot of times it doesn't line up, right? I mean, we see that even with our students whose, whose first language is English, right? Spelling is a big problem in English because it doesn't really make sense, right. right? It's not super logical in a lot of situations. And so being aware of that too, because there might be that a little bit of disconnect there. Mm -hmm. And there was one other thing too, I was think, reflecting on with this is um, I've, and I've heard this done is be um, as a language teacher or any teacher, it's really good to learn a new language, maybe as a little hobby or a side thing. So you get perspective on how a novice learner is mm -hmm. in your own classroom. Yeah, um, so whether you use some kind of online tool or resource or go online and realize, okay, wait a minute, how, what, what skills am I using um, to acquire this new language? Or gee, this isn't working for me, but I'm using this with my own students. Maybe I need to vary it a little bit. So it's very insightful to do that. A um, little vulnerable, but that's okay because that's that's how language learning is. You're really putting yourself out there to be comprehensible. Experience is always a great teacher. So yeah, for for mm -hmm. the teacher to have that experience of uh, being in the position of not being confident and and being at learning from the beginning, I could definitely see where that would open up you know some opportunities just for a little deeper understanding. So ba based on that, let's um, uh, for both of you, let's go ahead and finish out with this. Um, as far as Let's talk a little bit, not necessarily about a strategy, but thinking about one of the with the language barrier, sometimes it's difficult, I think, for our teachers to identify the specific needs of some of the students who maybe don't speak the same language that they do. And both of you are in a little different position because you can, being bilingual, communicate with them a little bit more, a um, little bit more fluidly, I guess. So what are some maybe some ways or some things that teachers could think about when they're trying to, you know, make some of these connections and help kind of further the process for their students who speak a different language? Maybe what are some things that would be helpful in doing that? I mean, for me, first and foremost is, you know, building relationships and making sure that they know that that you're someone that they can come to if they need help. A lot of our students, um, just like I was in high school where I didn't want to say anything in Spanish in my class because I didn't want to sound wrong. Like I didn't want to say it wrong. I didn't want somebody to look at me and go, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. We have a lot of students who aren't going to speak up if they need help um, because they don't want to. And this is true of all of our kids, right? Like this mm -hmm. is not just our students who are learning English as a second language. Um, and so, you know, really understanding that they might not always speak up and ask for help. Um, and and um, and also, we were, I, to kind of circle back a little bit when we were talking about like in-class activities, helping foster relationship building between students too, because I think a lot of times um, it was sort of naturally gravitate like into groups, right? And you, they sort of separate themselves, kids sort of separate themselves and do that. But also really trying to foster, you know, community within your classroom so that the kids feel like they're actually welcome there, that they're wanted there, that they're not going to be, you know, um, looked down on if they make a mistake and things like that. But but first and foremost would be like, you know, if you if you know, if you see a student that's struggling, reach out to the, their EL teacher, you can even reach out to to one of your the Spanish teachers, right? I've had um, colleagues who in the past have said, you know, I'm going to have my student 
um, respond to these questions in Spanish, can you help me understand if they're getting the point, you know? And a lot of times they'll go and go, they're kind of generalizing here, they're not really answering the question. And then they'll go back to the student and ask them to be more specific, like things like that, um, you know, reaching out and using the tools that you have. We also have um, Julie, Ebanks here, who is our translator, who can also be a good resource. I, you know, I know she does a lot, but there are people in the building who can, you know, you can reach out to um, for some, you know, like context and guidance if you need some help. But keeping an eye on students and, and knowing that they might be struggling, even if they're not saying something to you, is going to be the key. Uh, another thing that I think about, too, are making cultural comparisons between their own culture and our culture here and trying to bridge the gap with them and maybe providing some visual support whether it's through vocabulary support um, or any like thematic topics maybe some cultural pride as well and helping them make connections with their home country and community mm -hmm. with the new community that they are currently in as well and i think um, things like that help guide them to feel um, a little bit more supported and and comfortable you know any any type of learning that you're doing that making connections is really the key like taking something that you know based on prior knowledge and then being able to extend it with something new so i could definitely see that being really a valuable tool is once they can connect with something that they already know uh, whether it's in their native language or uh, from their native culture and then being able to make those extensions um, that would really be i think a a great starting point, you know, for helping the student to grow and develop and, and keep moving. So I guess other than that, the only other thing I, I, I wanted to really touch on was the idea of um, if if a teacher was looking for maybe some advice, uh, is there any any advice you could maybe give a teacher uh, if they're struggling um, just as far as, you know, class structure, those kind of things, uh, any any advice that you think would be a good place for them to start? Don't give up. Um, I think sometimes it's easy to be intimidated by that the work uh, um, because you it is it does it does lay bare right the, your inability to communicate it can be very frustrating it can be very at times it can be embarrassing right mm -hmm. like if you make a mistake and you say something in, in you know the wrong way or you know but don't to not be afraid to make mistakes with the students to be open and honest with them you're human they're human. Um, but not giving up, I, you know, not going, well, I just, I'm never going to be able to communicate with these students and I can't get this right. And I can't, you know, that's sort of like, um, I don't know what the term is for it. Um, but I don't want to say like learned helplessness, but sort of, you know, you, you, you try and it doesn't quite work. And Almost it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Like I'm never going to be able to do this. And then you go out and prove that to be the case. Yeah, exactly. Right. Just continuing to try because I've seen so many of my colleagues who, who are open with the kids are like, listen, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to mess up. Um, I mean, we we speak the language and we still make mistakes on a daily basis, right? Um, and so just being open and, and understanding of the fact that it's good, it's going to be frustrating. It's going to be a little scary. That's completely normal. But the kids still need you to, to hang in there and stick with it. Mm -hmm. And also, I think um, there are many resources for TESOL educators teaching English to speakers of other languages. And it's interesting because I think a lot of those things could be applied to teachers that are not EL teachers. So that could be a supportive um, system for them as well. So um, Ohio TESOL, um, T-E-S-O-L, 
Um, I'm sure they have some resources or even I think the national organization too for helping teachers and classes that have maybe core classes and, and how to reach out and make connections in your own classroom um, without having to maybe get certified even in TESOL. You know, I'm sure that you can apply a lot of those things because it is an immersive thing that you're doing with them too, really, um, for your content area. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of what I, what I mentioned before, you know, it's going to take time, right? You, you're not going to be a pro at this your first year with, with, with students in your class, just like you weren't a pro the first year you, you know, after you graduated and you started teaching. Took it's going to take own time. Class, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take time. So understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. A, a lot of things just to consider in the in the world of uh, you know language instruction and and how that definitely is a uh, a key topic and something that teachers are are working with period by period each day in, in our schools. Uh, I definitely want to thank each of you, uh, Jessica Friesner and also uh, Debbie Varga. Thank you guys for being on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode of, of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad. And the perspective of a bilingual teacher definitely provides a lot of insight into some of the challenges that arise when there's a language barrier in the classroom. Hopefully some of the ideas that we've discussed will be helpful to you in your own teaching environment. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and write us a review. You can find all episodes of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.